0: I feel like James Maxwell and his partner Jordan acquired a great business. It's B2B, recurring revenue, solid contracts, nicely aged, and perhaps above all, what sounds like a really solid seller. Very organized, immaculate books, good to her people, and good to James and Jordan. As you'll hear, she teed up some contracts for them so that within the first months of ownership, the business saw a nice pop in growth. What a gift. One thing she didn't do great, however, was delegate. Their seller worked very much in the business, not on it. And that was something that James wanted to address immediately by hiring a general manager once he became owner. So, this episode is not only a great story, but one that will be particularly interesting to those of you who want to put a GM in place as promptly as possible. Listen on for that and much, much more with James Maxwell. <laughs> Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. What size of business should you buy? What can you afford? How much SDE or EBITDA does the business you acquire need to generate to pay off your loan, pay you the income you need, and reinvest in the business? Of course, the answer varies from person to person, so you need to answer this question for yourself. Chelsea Wood runs the Acquisition Lab and did a great interview on Acquiring Minds just a couple weeks ago. The lab is a do-it-with-you buy-side advisory service founded by one Walker Dyble, author of Buy Then Build. Chelsea's running a live session on this question, what size of business should you buy? She's worked with over 250 searchers who've gone through the lab, and this question comes up constantly. So at the live session, she'll explain how to arrive at the answer. Acquiring Minds is co-hosting it, so I'll be there as well, playing MC and taking notes. It's Wednesday, June 22nd at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Register in the show notes. James Maxwell, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Will, super glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. James, you and your partner, Jordan Inman... Acquired a commercial janitorial business in November. Um, so you're and you're coming up right on your six month uh, anniversary. Um, lots of themes to this story that we're going to dive into. It was a partner search, obviously. Want to hear about that? You guys acquired in a smaller market, uh, about a hundred thousand people. So uh, want to hear um, kind of about a search in a smaller market. You acquired in an industry that's really appealing to a lot of searchers. Commercial janitorial is one you hear about a lot on SearchFunder and other places. You're both ex-military uh, and, and much more. Lots to go over. Lots that's going to be valuable to the audience on this. So let's begin with your background, as always. So tell me, James, a little bit about yourself um, and, and anything you want to mention also about your partner, Jordan.
1: Yeah, thanks, Will. Um, so let's see. I'm, uh, I'm married. I've got, got two young kids both in diapers. So uh, extremely Ooh. hectic phase of, of life right now. I've got one who's just a, a little bit over two and then we have a seven-month-old, um, seven month old. Seven months. Back. So if I
0: do the math, if I do the math, that means that one and the, the signing on the dotted line for the business happened right around the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was doing due diligence, uh, you know, from the hospital. I was uh, reviewing stuff while holding a newborn. It was, uh, it was great.
0: Wow. Bold. But um <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, so had the second child and, uh, and then closed on the business shortly thereafter, um, backing up a little bit, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a veteran, um, spent a number of years in, in both the Marine Corps and the Navy, um, in the Marine Corps is where I met my partner, Jordan. Um, he's a, he's a former Marine officer as well. Um, didn't do quite as long in the service as I did. So he's, he's got a bit of a head start in the civilian sector, um, which has been great, but, um, as I was thinking about my life post-military um, and what I wanted to do, I, I went and got a, um, an MBA. Uh, a lot of folks do that when they're not sure exactly what the rest of their life looks like. And really great experience. I, I knew the traditional paths weren't right for me. Um, you know, consulting, investment banking, um, what a lot of my peers went and did. Uh, but thinking about what transferable skills do I have leaving the military? And what career would I get the most satisfaction of? And, my time in the service leading people and, and running a small team was the most gratifying part of my career and entrepreneurship through acquisition is in my mind, the most immediate way to replicate that. And, you know, go from leading small teams in the military to leading a small team in the civilian world was, was just the perfect fit. And learning about ETA has been just, um, an incredible blessing to me, um, my partner Jordan, I know as well, and just kind of the lifestyle we want to live and, and the satisfaction we want to get out of our careers. And that brings us to today, we're about six months in.
0: Did you learn about ETA at in the MBA program? So I'd
1: say a couple of years prior, I, I was just kind of starting to brainstorm, what am I going to do when I, when I leave the service? And a lot of people wait until two days before they leave the service to figure out their next move. Um, i wanted to have you know a, a longer runway than that and um i can't remember exactly how i how i came across it but um uh was recommended some books um you know all, all the all the majors that that everybody yeah. talks about
0: let, let me guess um, right
1: <laughs> yeah you got it uh landed on sites you know like searchfunder.com and um uh it was just like that light bulb moment like, wow, this is, this is actually a thing. And nobody really knows that until they, they kind of learn about it. And, um, so I get to my MBA program and I, I dedicate everything I do there to how can I give myself tools for the toolbox for an ETA career and don't tell some of my professors, but maybe I gaffed off some of the stuff that was a little bit less relevant (laughs) for, for my future. But, um, but using using uh, that time in the MBA program to really arm myself for, for post MBA was was really awesome, and I had a lot of great professors and mentors along the way too.
0: Well, you're only six months in, so this question might be a bit premature, but I do wanna I do wanna ask. To what extent you feel like the MBA program did prepare you for being an entrepreneur? Um, uh, ETA is, is a, lo- a lot of people's discovery of ETA does happen in MBA programs. Um, at the same time, you know, lots of entrepreneurs and particularly in Silicon Valley land um, will say that MBA is more, you know, kind of training to be a manager rather than being an entrepreneur. So weigh in on that. How did your MBA pro- program prepare you for these first six months?
1: I 100% don't think an MBA is required or necessary. Is it helpful? Yes. Um, I think it was helpful for me in the fact that I was so far removed from undergrad. You know, I, you know, I graduated undergrad, um, you know, 15 years ago. So yeah. my last finance class or economics class was a very long time ago. And um, with a couple of kids thrown in the mix, you know, that, that might as well be 100 years ago. Um <laughs> So I think the, the, what the MBA allowed me to do was kind of reset my brain and, and kind of um, relearn some of the things that I, that I had already learned, but things that uh, definitely helped. And, you know, we'll get into this in a bit, but talking about due diligence and some of the classes I took in uh, in my MBA program allowed me to dig into some of the accounting things that two years prior, I, you know, would have been a complete foreign language to me, but... Um, yeah, I, I'm a 100% passionate believer that an MBA is not required. And um, for those who are coming from finance-type jobs or uh, are a little bit closer to undergrad experience, I, you know, I wouldn't even necessarily recommend
0: it. Mm-hmm. And it. And it sounds like to the extent that it was valuable, it was really in in these kind of um, quantitative, technical, financial skills that you brushed up on. That, that was the most valuable stuff from your MBA program.
1: Yeah, that and... Um, the networking I think has been great, you know, just being part of, um, you know, one of the top MBA programs and just, you know, hearing presentations from the search fund community from different, uh, of the major investors, um, getting to intern with a traditional search fund, which I did between years one and two, just so I guess having access to those experiences was, was awesome. Um, also, you know, my, my favorite professor, um, is a, Really, really great private equity guy. And as I was getting ready to close on this business, he put me in touch with a really good friend of his who happened to own one of the largest janitorial companies in the United States, you know, 20 years ago. And he's been kind of an unofficial board member for us. So that network's been been really great and really valuable, too.
0: Yeah. And that is one of the things that you often hear about MBA programs, that a lot of the value of them is actually in the network rather than the, the, the book learning. 100 percent. Cool. The now, um, if if you were if you were if you interned with a traditional search fund and you were going through the MBA route, so you you would have been a candidate to do a traditional search fund rather than a self funded search. You guys did a self funded search, however. So, um, what tell me tell me about that decision? August Felker is a two time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great, no risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers, they've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher check out Oberly-risk.com, riskcom O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com. Link in the show notes.
1: So the, the internship was awesome. I, I interned with two great, uh, it was a partnered search fund um, from my business school. Uh, so met them through that network. And just the exposure, watching how they interacted with their investors the targets they were um, they were uh, looking to acquire, and just being a part of that was was phenomenal. Um, I think I knew from the start that self funded was for me, mostly because um, I'm very I was very geographically focused, and all the investors I spoke to in the traditional search fund world, and you know you know this um, they, they want you to be a little bit more open to mm-hmm. opportunities outside of a town of a hundred thousand which is which is where I knew I wanted to you know raise my family. Um, so I was very specific so I think that alone probably would have killed any traditional search fund aspirations. And then secondly I and, and there are some investors that are into the more um, long-term you know I guess more permanent equity yep. kind of structures uh, but I didn't I didn't want any kind of exit pressure. For me, this was a opportunity to build a career in a place where I want to raise my kids. Um, and I didn't want, you know, five, seven, 10 years from now uh, to, to feel the pressure of, of, of doing some kind of exit. You know, if I really like the business, if I enjoy it, if I'm able to grow it, um, you know, organically, inorganically, and it's just great. Um, you know, why not keep this thing forever and, and uh, pass it down to my kids one day? So I wanted that flexibility and, 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 uh, and the freedom. But the traditional search fund route is great. I know you just posted a yep. the debate <laughs> there between uh, the self-funded and the traditional. And, you know, they're both completely excellent opportunities. It's just, you know, you, you pick an orange or you pick an apple and there's different uh, there's pros and cons to both. And um, the self-funded was just made the most sense for me at the stage of life I was in.
0: Okay, let's get into the search itself. So, so we're not going to say p- to people exactly where you are, but it's a it's a um, a smallish city of about a hundred thousand folks, uh, in the northwest of the U.S. Um, and you wanted, as you just said, you wanted to live there, so that um, would pr- that would limit you know the the opportunities presumably. So talk talk to us about what your search looked like in um, in a, a relatively isolated or smaller market.
1: So the great thing about our search and um you know, when Jordan and I decided to partner up and and make this thing a reality, the great thing is we were under no time pressure whatsoever to make an acquisition. You know, some you know traditional search funds. You know, you've got two years of runway to find something and close on it. Jordan and I, um, you know, both had uh, had income sources. We both have you know wives that work, um, so we we didn't feel that pressure, which was just great. It allows you to, I think come at the the situation very, very sober, Mm -hmm. soberly, Mm -hmm. I guess, um, and really take our time to find the right opportunity. Um, regarding our specific search, it it was, it was the result of networking. So we knew we wanted to buy something in in the town we were in, and it's just a matter of talking to people and and getting to know people. And sure enough opportunities kind of start to percolate to the surface. So this one was, uh, um, came from a a business broker, but it was a gentleman whom we had kind of developed a relationship with. And it it had gotten to the point where he's like, Hey guys, I've got this great opportunity that, you know, I haven't listed yet, but I want you guys to take a look at it. And, um, we took a look at it and it was, it was really intriguing. And, uh, you know, that was it. We we had looked at a number of other deals before, sorry, I don't want to use the word deals. Um, I read something recently, I think it was a, a big private equity firm, they banned the use of the word deal. Had, had you heard about that, Will? Oh, no.
0: Tell me why, because it sounds so transactional.
1: Yes. Um, I can't remember the name of the private equity firm, but it basically said nobody at this company will use the word deal ever again. And if you do, there's like a fine. Crazy. And, um, but I get it. You know, When I, when I read people and, um, or, or read what they write and they're talking about deals, 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 it is really transactional. And, and this is, this is human, uh, human lives we're talking about in mm-hmm. small business. This is people's income. This is how they put food on the table. And you know, this is a living, breathing thing. And calling it a deal, um, yeah, for, for some reason, maybe it was just reading that article, but it now uh, um, doesn't sound right to me. So anyway, I looked at a number of other opportunities um, before we had landed on this one. But once we saw it, we knew it was worth pursuing. We put in an LOI, I think, um, a day or two later after we had met the seller and, um, and then we were, uh, under contract shortly thereafter.
0: James, when you said you were networking in town, um, does that mean that you were, I mean, obviously that means you were reaching out to the bro- the big business brokers in town, getting on their radar, getting on their lists. Was there anything else that you were doing? And how did and um, as a follow up, how did you cultivate the relationship with this particular broker who sent you this business opportunity?
1: Yeah, um, so Jordan had been in this town uh, much longer than me. I, I told you he had gotten out of the military a number of years yeah. um, prior, and um, he's ultra well connected here. You know, has a great network of friends and mentors, and that alone, super super valuable. So um, getting plugged in with Jordan right away kind of um, helped me kind of access that as well, you know, cause my wife and I and my kids were, were fairly new here, mm-hmm. but um, the power of just reaching out to somebody and saying, Hey, do you have a few minutes? You know, I'd love to pick your brain. You know, I'm a transitioning veteran um, MBA student, whatever, you know, that goes a long way. And I think people are, they're very willing to help. Um, it's just having, having a little bit of courage to go out and put yourself out there and ask, but um yeah i was surprised because i i hadn't done that in years you know my my career had been so established but now it's i need to go and kind of create opportunities in a way and um just kind of reaching out putting yourself out there and, and starting those conversations and you never know where one conversation will lead you and i think that's what we found
0: well Welcome to the life of an entrepreneur. That's also Amen, a big part brother. of uh, <laughs> what, what's different yeah. about being an entrepreneur versus working for somebody. That's right. So, so James, you, you're you're doing this networking. You're talking to brokers. You're you're reaching out. Ask you know, kind of what what you just described. Um, what what a deal flow, and forgive the term. I, I, I it's going to take me a few times to break the habit of using that word. <laughs> what did your deal <laughs> flow? What does deal flow look like? in a city of a hundred ish thousand people when you're really out there, um, you know, beating the bushes, trying to, trying to find opportunities. Um, like, do you feel like if you hadn't found this business, you might've been waiting around for another year or two or no, it's like, no, no, there's, there's deal flow. Like we could have found something we, 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 we would have been able to find something. What does that, what does that look like for people who out there who might be also looking at living in a, in a city of this size?
1: I think there's, Way more opportunity out there than what you might find on brokered deals or businesses yeah. that are that are listed for sale. Um, the seller of our business, in fact, didn't even know she could sell the business. It was only because her daughter-in-law was a real estate agent who happened to know a business broker, and just one day said, "Hey, have you ever thought about selling?" And our seller, who's a fantastic woman, is like, what do you mean I can't sell this? And, um, and sure enough, that's how that conversation started. So I think my point is um, there are so many businesses, even in a town of 100,000, yeah. and nearly all of them are for sale for the right price. Um, yeah. And I think it's just a matter of finding the ones who maybe don't even know that selling is an option. But damn, coming out of COVID, people were worn out. People were exhausted. You know, I, at the traditional search fund, we did a little bit of direct outreach. You know, p- proprietary, and yep. our return on time was very, very bad doing that. But we're reaching out to massive companies. You know, that that get uh, a lot of contact daily from private equity firms and and other kind of uh, potential suitors. I think the proprietary direct outreach, I think you would have a lot more success on the smaller side of the spectrum because you're mostly providing an opportunity for people for for people who founded a business as a way to exit that they may might not even know is a possibility, yeah, so totally. um, coming out of Covid, everybody was worn out, exhausted, um I think the opportunities were. Were phenomenal even in a town of a hundred thousand.
0: Yeah, cool. And but you didn't you didn't in in your search resort to proprietary at all. Correct. I think um,
1: for us it was really uh, you know Jordan and I decided to do this, and like I said, time wasn't really a factor. Yeah. And so we really um, were kind of slow rolling it, you know, seeing what was out there, learning some different industries. Um, I think had we wanted to really put the pedal to the metal, we would have uh, we would have gone all in on you know every different method of, of sourcing potential opportunities.
0: Yeah, cool. It didn't need to. And just to be clear with people, um, your your city is not you know you're when we say hundred thousand, it's not a hundred thousand because you know you're part of a five million dollar five million five million person metropolitan area. It's a pretty self contained hundred thousand dollar <laughs> hundred thousand person population um so just want to be be clear with people that this isn't like a a, yeah, a suburb right. of a major city it's it's very self contained um and yep. so how long did how long did it take for for you to find the business um slow rolling it
1: yeah so just um kind of being a, a passive uh you know person kind of searching um i'd say maybe Five months from when we decided, okay, this is something we're going to pursue, and we're going to pursue it together. Um, five months until we uh, got under contract on on that company.
0: Wow, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, man, the, your your story just keeps getting better. Uh, wait till wait till <laughs> people hear about uh, about the numbers. So. Um, <laughs> let's do that right now. So tell us yeah. about this, this business, James. What, what does it look like? Tell, start with, um, I mean, r- repeat for, for me what it does and kind of get, get into a little detail there and then give me the top line numbers on it, please.
1: Okay. So um, 22-year-old company. So been in business a long time, profitable since year one. Um, seller is the founder, grew the company um, phenomenally well over the course of 22 years. Um, we bought the company with uh, just north of 35 uh, employees or so. Um, so a very robust team, but she was managing the entire thing herself. And I think that's what you find on, on the lower end of, of the, the lower market here yep. is um, you've got an owner who's operating it and they are kind of tapped out in terms of how far can I take this thing with um, the resources that I've got, and um, you know, she she worked wonders in getting this company to where it was. And um, when we saw the opportunity, it was phenomenal because everything was so wired tight. You know, her books were were spotless. Her record keeping was immaculate, um, which I would say you don't find a lot in these smaller businesses. They might. You know, they might be a lot more messy. Um, this one, and maybe it's the, the nature of the industry. It's, you know, this, this, this seller is a cleaning company.
0: So she is very <laughs> so,
1: tidy, very yeah. clean and all aspects of know, her life
0: are, are tip top. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. And, um, so she's so tidy and, and such a perfectionist that, uh, we saw the exact same in in the way she ran her business. And, um, So to to throw some numbers uh, at you, um, basically, we were looking at when we bought it, um, 2020 revenue at about one and a half million. So we came in in kind of mid-2021. So annualized, we were looking at, I don't know, 1.55 million um, in in revenue, something like that, with very healthy SDE. Um, just north of about hundred thousand um, so those were kind of the numbers that we saw um, coming in you know we put in an offer um, uh, at a, basically one 1.8 million was our was the purchase price that we landed on that uh, the seller accepted so we're looking at you know a little bit north of uh, three times multiple Um calculating SDE by the way is not as easy as it sounds it's always kind of a moving target you know and it, it kind of depends what what you decide to add back what the bank decides to add back um, you know as the the year kind of flows on, things change a little bit so um, I can't say specifically okay SDE was five hundred and twenty six thousand um, but I'm comfortable in saying it was you know between 500 and five hundred and six hundred ish yeah yeah. Um, So that's about where we were. Um, I think the multiple that we offered was very, uh, very fair. Um, You know, we were buying a company that had a phenomenal reputation, great contracts in place, you know, the top dogs in town here. Um, So that's worth a premium to us, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Had the company, you know, been taking payments from Venmo and you know you've got some cash under the table to employees. We didn't have any of that that we had to sift through. And in the lower market, there's value in that for sure. So we we definitely sure. um, we paid a, a, a good multiple that the seller was happy with, that we were happy with, and uh, yeah, it worked out.
0: Well, I mean, you changed this woman's life. She she thought she was going to, you know end her career and kind of close the door and walk away. And instead she's got a hundred 1.8 million bucks. So it's awesome. And you guys got, and you guys got a really, really solid business with 22 years of history and tight contracts. Now talk to me a little bit about the, so it's, it's commercial cleaning. Is there any kind of um, specialty work or, or higher skilled work that, that the, the, the business offers? And I ask because, the margins, you know, f- f- let's call it just $500,000 on, you know, $1.5 million uh, in revenue for easy math. If, uh, you know, roughly, she's she's th- that doesn't include her salary, but I mean, th- those seem like really strong margins. And um, one of the things that you often hear about janitorial commercial cleaning is it looks desirable in many ways, you know, recurring revenue, business to business, et cetera. Except because it's rather low skilled, the margins can just be razor thin. doesn't seem like the case here, so uh, help me work through that.
1: yeah the, mar- the margins are definitely very healthy, and um, you know we're we're paying our team members very well, and we're also charging very much in line with kind of the industry standard at least in this region. So from a gross margin perspective, we're right on track with other commercial cleaning companies, I would, okay. I would say. Okay. Um, so we don't have any advantage there. I think where we have a huge advantage is the seller was pretty much running the business herself. So she was the office manager. She was sales. She was um, basically every function in the business, which, by the way, we have now hired out um, You know, a, a number of team members, um, which is cutting into our margin quite a bit. Yeah. I want to um,
0: hear about that. We'll get to that.
1: Yeah. So I think she ran the business in such a lean way that it was very profitable, and we knew in due diligence the the f the initiatives we wanted to put in place were going to cut into those margins. So it was very important to us to know, okay, can we finance this thing? Can we pay the people we want to pay to have um, different functions within this business? And also leave, you know, meat on the bone for for Jordan and I, and um, we felt very comfortable um, looking at the history of this business and and you know the direction that we wanted to go. That that yeah, this thing was was definitely very viable.
0: Okay, well let, let's get into that a little bit because if I, I'm I'm thinking to myself, doing um, some back of the napkin stuff here, five hundred grand in SDE, um, you, you got to service the debt pay yourselves, yep. you're a partner yep. in search. So that's actually two salaries or, or two yep. people who who want to see um, profit coming from the company. And then, you, and then you basically immediately decide to put in a GM because she's been working 18 hours a day for 22 years or whatever. And that's not what you signed up for. Um, that starts to feel, all, all of a sudden, $500,000 doesn't start to feel like very much. But in fact, you could afford to hire a GM and do all the things I just said, debt service and pay yourselves. And... Have money left over to, to either hire somebody else or, or reinvest in the business? That, that's how far this $500,000 is going?
1: Yep. So, um, so yeah. So, to, to give a little bit more context to our debt service. So, yeah. um, we, we did a, uh, an 80-10-10 structure. So, we're basically 90% leveraged, right? Um, yeah. So, which is a very common structure in, you know, when you're going the SBA route. Our debt service is just about, I'd say, about 200K a year. So there you go. So after debt service, we've got about 300K $300, left over. Um, since we've bought the business, we've, you know, we're on track to do about 2 million this year. So we're up about 30%. Um, our SDE um, is, is about 700,000 now at, a, at this point. Um, just through some, some you know, just through some simple kind of initiatives. And I don't like this phrase either, but low hanging fruit, you know, um, we've got a lot of customers who haven't had a price increase since 2015. And when we do the margins on that one customer, we realize we're breaking even. And oh. so the margins are still very healthy, even though we've got a number of customers that are breaking even. So. Um, simple things like that, uh, you know, have, have led to some growth right off the bat, growth in revenue, growth in, um, in profitability. Um, so yeah, circling back, we knew when we bought the business that Jordan and I, we did not want to run the day to day. Um, we knew if we got sucked into that, we would be buying ourselves a job and working in the business and not on it. And. So we knew hiring a GM right out the gate was was how we wanted to um, to approach this, and we found a great general manager who came on board, uh, you know, shortly after we got the LOI signed, and um, that gave Jordan and I some space and breathing room to know that the day to day functions were going to be handled, and what other um, strategic initiatives can we work on to really grow this business and. Hiring that GM, if we did not do that, we would be, um, we would still be very successful i mean don 't get me wrong, but um, you know we would, uh, I, think, I think things would be moving a little bit slower if, if that were the case so that was an investment to us that was just a no brainer
0: yeah and, and let 's um, hear a little bit more about hiring this gm um, i 'd love for you to be able to tell us how much you pay this individual. And then also, if she was working so hard on the business, can everything that she was doing truly be replaced with just a single individual versus, <laughs> you know, two? You know, founder, fa- founders tend to do the work of three people.
1: Yeah. So, um, so that's a really great question. And, and we're, we're grappling with that right now. So we, we brought on the general manager thinking it would be a one-for-one swap with the seller. Right,
0: right. Right.
1: Um, We also brought on an office manager to run our billing, um, uh, HR, payroll, those functions. Um, So we thought initially those two hires would be um, kind of replacing that seller in the day-to-day role. But what we did not realize is you cannot replace 22 years of resident knowledge as easily as you think. And this goes back to the the transferability of, of small business is something that everybody needs to really, really reflect on before they get serious about buying a company because, you know, things sound great on paper, you know, when you do your Excel modeling and all that is this business truly transferable. And, you know, I'll give you a story. Um, yeah. One of our key, key employees, she's kind of our liaison, um, she's bilingual. She does a lot of, uh, she comes to every meeting with team members to help translate. And, um, anyway, she's, she's just fantastic. She's been with this company about five years. And when she heard that the seller had sold the company, she broke down in tears and the sellers said, Hey, what's, what's wrong? You know, like these guys are great. Um, you know, the company's in good hands. And she said, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to work for a man. Wow. And, and you think about like the, she had been working for the seller who had come up as a cleaner herself, was very relatable to these team members. You know, most of our our cleaning staff are, are women. Um, there was a lot of relatability there. Um, she had come up as a cleaner herself. She didn't speak very good Spanish. Um, but there was, there was definitely a connection there. And so when you bring in a couple of, you know, military veterans, um, there's a huge diff, right? There's a huge difference (laughs) there. And, um, that was a challenge. And, um, we have to think every day about, okay, what message am I sending with everything I do? Like the clothes I wear, the car I drive, the way I speak, you know, um, And we need to really think about that. And, you know, I I just bring that up to think about, you know, the the transferability of business and and really, really reflecting on can I replace this seller or do I have a strategy to really replace this seller? Because it's more than just, okay, I've got some management skills and I can figure this out. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of nuance there that um, you got to think about as well.
0: Well, and, you know, this isn't this type of leadership um, challenge i'm I'm not sure the military prepares you for this one. I mean, this is a little bit different
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> right or is. or or no yeah.
0: or no or 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 do you feel like military leadership that you learn is generalizable to kind of all leadership? like yeah, is there anything that you're that um that you're applying from your military years into this particular um, uh, um leadership issue that you're that you, you find yourself in?
1: Yeah, I think um so my my biggest weakness, and i I know this. Um, just from self-reflection and and hearing it from others, I can be very direct, very blunt, don't really beat around the bush. And the military rewards that, Mm -hmm. right? Really clear, concise communication. Mm -hmm. Um, I've found that that can be uh, received negatively in in civilian contexts. And, you know, in the military, I can say, they will like, you fucked this up, like go fix it. Um, if I say that at my job now or at my company now, you better believe I'm going to have a, a file of team members walking out the front door. Yeah. So yeah. Um, there's, <laughs> it's just a different uh, culture. And I, I have to work on that, you know, cause that's, yeah. that's, um, that doesn't come naturally to me. I think because of so many years of, of conditioning, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you have any specifics you could share? This is so interesting about this, this woman who was intimidated or didn't want to work for a man. Um, what you've done, I mean, you mentioned like thinking about the car you drive or, um, or, or how you communicate with this, this woman, what have, what, what have you done to, to whatever, soften that relationship or, or engender trust? I'm I'm just so curious because it yeah it, it it the way you described it it feels like kind of oil and water what what do you do there?
1: So first off, our general manager is the nicest guy you will ever meet. He's um, and that's why we love him in this role because you know he's so customer facing and employee facing, and he's the right guy for the job because he makes the customers feel appreciated and cared about and loved. He makes the team members feel appreciated cared about loved um and i think that he has the ability to disarm people right off the bat which maybe i don't maybe jordan doesn't um so he he complimented our weakness right there yeah yeah and that's how you should hire people and um you know he uh we knew immediately we we have to address this specific issue head on especially with our most important team member and it was just a um a very quick attempt at building trust with this woman and um you know letting letting her know that we're not just people buying a company who are going to make changes and potentially affect the way she provides for her family you know it was um getting to know her on a personal level. And, you know, it's great. You know, my, my general manager had a, had a birthday party recently and, and this woman showed up and brought a cake and um, yeah. So I think, I think we're, we're getting there, but it's still, it's always going to be a challenge, you know, and it's, it's never done. It's, it's keeping trust, developing it and then keeping it.
0: Yeah. And James, t- can you tell us more about the hiring of this GM? What what does what what somebody pay a, a general manager in, in this industry? Yeah, so I think- and, and how did you find the person? Was it just an, an add on Indeed or what? Nope. So I think re- regarding pay, that's that's a tough question. I think um,
1: I would say the market rate for general manager of a company this size, you know, maybe um, maybe 70 to just north of 100. Um, I'm a big believer that, you know- overpay for, for talent and putting the right person in the right seat. And so, um, you know, we're paying this gentleman, you know, a hundred thousand a year to run the company with, um, the potential for some, uh, equity that vests after a certain number of years running the company. And, um, the idea is that we need to incentivize the general manager to a want to join us and then B do a great job and stick around and, We wanted to pay enough where, you know, it wasn't gonna be a, well, maybe this is a good opportunity. Maybe it's not, you know, we wanted to pay enough where, you know, this guy was like, hell yeah, I'm on board. You're paying me enough that money's no longer an issue. Um, You know, and and there's incentive for for growth and, and being a part of this thing for the long run. So to us, that was worth it.
0: And where do you find somebody like this?
1: oh yeah sorry so um so actually through through our network you know um uh very long story i guess but uh you know we we got here and um you know child care for our our daughter at the time and um met this great gal uh named sarah who uh who ended up helping out watching watching our child um when we first got here and and it turns out um this was sarah's husband who had a great career with a big national company? Um, I think the problem was for him to continue to grow in the company he was in, they would have to leave the town that we're in. So he was kind of capped out in terms of, uh, you know, career mobility without having to move to a bigger metro area. Yeah, which for the same reasons as why I wanted to raise my kids here, he wanted to raise his kids here. Yeah. Um, so for him to take the next step in his career, I think uh, it was just a perfect fit, perfect timing. Um, and uh, yeah, he was, he was willing to come on board. And I think the trust that we had known each other, we had developed a relationship. You know, his wife is basically uh, an aunt to my, my daughter. Um, there was kind of that instant, that instant, uh, correct, not instant, I guess, built level of trust.
0: James so you you with this general manager um well <clears throat> one of the things that you led by saying is that the the military experience um really is uh, uh, applies well to small running a small business right and and it's it's really something that you felt like all the skills that you had learned in the military that would be the kind of the perfect out- outlet um be doing buying and running a small business in fact you you put in a gm so you're actually one step removed from direct leadership. You're leading him. So I don't mean to say that you're, you know, you're not leading, but, but it's not, you, you don't, you're not kind of like frontline leadership. You're kind of behind the guy leading, leading things. Mm. And, and if you disagree yeah, with that yeah, characterization, yeah. um, stop me. But I want to, I want to um, just kind of push on that a little bit therefore, because in some sense, you're, <clears throat> you guys are, um, your roles are much more strategic and less kind of like rallying the troops. Um, Yeah. What, what, talk me through that.
1: Yeah. So when you, when you come into the military as, as a young officer, you're, you are that frontline leader, you know, with your team doing everything they're doing, rallying the troops, you know, charging the Hill as, as Jordan would say, um, you know, you continue to lead at different levels in the military, different sizes of teams, um, And and I guess there's always an opportunity to be that frontline leader, you know, even if you're, you know, a general or or an admiral. Um, But things do change a little bit. You know, you start to, um, you know, think instead of thinking down and in a little bit, you're thinking more up and out, you know, as you as you uh, advance in your career in the military. And you become, you know, the person who's thinking more strategically and maybe issuing overarching guidance to the tactical elements that are then going to go and um and execute your your intent, you know, your commander's intent, which is what they call it in um mm-hmm. in the military. and I think um I think in terms of transferability, that's probably where I was at in my military career was you know more of the um you know issuing the overall guidance and then letting the tactical elements kind of execute that. Um, and I think that's kind of what's happening now with with our company. you know, we've got a general manager in place we're thinking strategically up and out issuing our kind of overall intent and then letting our general manager execute it.
0: And and these first 6 months so far so good on that with that approach?
1: Yeah, so um so the first 6 months is uh you know, I guess stabilize like we yeah. closed on the business, let's let the dust settle and um and stabilize everything and and really um step into the seller's shoes and it's been tough. Will I'll tell you what, um, you know, we hired the office manager. Um, I was getting in there really trying to, um, get some processes and systems in place. Um, our seller was a filing cabinet person for 22 years and just trying to get all that stuff, um, up on step, move to a cloud-based, um, you know, system for organizing our, our files and everything like that, um, getting everything into QuickBooks online. All this stuff sounds very, yeah. Of course you do that, but it takes time, you know. And and um, just working on that. But turnover has been almost non-existent from an employee and customer standpoint over these first six months, which has been awesome. Yeah, growth has been growth has been incredible, and a lot of that I'll tell you has been initiatives that the seller put into place before we closed. So we can't take a bunch of credit for, for um, initiatives that, that she, in fact, uh, did for us.
0: And by initiatives, you mean just like selling, like she, she was com- getting close to signing new contracts?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, she, she was signing new contracts up until, you know, the day we closed. And we had a three-month transition period with her. Um, you know, 90 days, pretty standard. And she never once had the mindset where I sold the company. I'm out of here. You guys are on your own. Yeah. She, she is incredible. She loves the company. She cares about it, regardless of whether or not she owns it. This is her baby and it will be forever. And, you know, we're six months into it. And I called her on Monday just to pick her brain about something. And, you know, she answers on the first ring and, and loves talking to us. And maybe we got really lucky. I I think, you know, I've heard horror stories of sellers riding off into the sunset after a week. Um, But but we got really lucky. And that's another thing is during due diligence, really assess the kind of seller you have, make sure it's a person with integrity, make sure it's a person who, um, who is going to guide you the right way during transition, you know, and um, somebody who six months later will still answer your phone call and and a- uh, answer a question within reason, of course.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, and I, she sounds like a remarkable woman. I, I don't want to take anything from her, um, but I'll just repeat myself. Like you also, you know, from her perspective, it's like, I mean, you made her a millionaire um, and she wasn't expecting she she wasn't expecting to walk away to walk away with anything necessarily I mean if she's been getting five hundred thousand dollars in s d e for many years, she probably had a nice um a nice nest egg saved up um yeah. but but just you know she's also incentivized to make this really work um because it's either one point eight million dollars or zero from her from her perspective and, and I really think that 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 your story is so um emblematic of of the opportunity here where you know to indulge the cliche win win i mean you guys got a great business at a great price and she got this wonderful solid you know <laughs> um windfall that she wasn't even expecting as she moves into retirement it's just so it's just such a a happy a happy deal And 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 I think that just that that really happens a lot in this acquisition entrepreneurship world with with these small business owners who just don't don't think their businesses are worth anything. In fact, they're they're worth a lot um, to people like you and me. It's great. Um, And but so just to on the sales thing and what these these initiatives that she teed up for you, you said it was 1.55 million in revenue when you acquired the business, and now you said what 1.9ish two.
1: Yeah, we're. I think twenty twenty two. We're looking at about two million, um, as long as we don't mess anything up. But you know, our, our January to now run rate is uh, is pointing that direction. So thirty percent growth.
0: Um, yeah, in in the first year, and and yeah. you. But but you said some of yeah. that did come from also just raising some prices, so improving margins on existing businesses on, on existing contracts a little bit.
1: Yeah. So um, you know, just the just the prices that we've raised um, on a number of accounts, you know, that contributed, you know, about 60 grand a year, just in, in revenue increase, um, just on some simple increases. Now, I don't want people to get the wrong impression and think that that's all going to flow to the bottom line because there are serious wage pressures happening right now. The labor market is brutal and wages are going up faster than, uh, faster than we can keep up. So, Um, don't think that we're, you know, greedily raising prices just to, um, go right into our pockets. Um, you know, we, we are, we are paying that back towards our, our keeping our team members because, you know, this is a high turnover industry, um, you know, janitorial specifically. Uh, I can't remember the statistic, but I think it's like 200% annually turnover, which is a lot. Our company doesn't have that. Our company doesn't have that problem fortunately I think you know we've hired uh I think fifteen people in the last six months and we've lost maybe i don't know four or five so um, our turnover's been been really low um, but you know we pay our 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 team members very well and yeah that, that, that cost comes from somewhere.
0: James, I still have a bunch more questions for you, and and I'm paying attention to the clock, Um, so I'm going to kind of jump around here and move quick. just tell us a little bit more that you, what you found about commercial cleaning in the first six months, uh, just because this is, you know, this, this does have at least from, from the outside, really attractive characteristics of B2B recurring revenue. Um, but, it, and, and so searchers look, look at it a lot. Um, but it also has a reputation for razor thin margins. As I said, w- uh, what are some of the pros and cons now that you're inside this industry that you see, uh, labor turnover, you just mentioned, what, what else?
1: So I'm going to start with cons just cause, uh, because, uh, so labor is always going to be the challenge. And when I talked to, um, you know, like I said, our unofficial board member owned one of the largest janitorial companies. And he said, labor is always going to be the challenge. And, you know, if you solve it, uh, great, but you won't. Um, so it's just one of those, it's one of those things that's always going to be there. Um, the challenge is not only turnover, but really, making sure quality control is dialed in. Like, you know, we've got upwards of 250 accounts and we can't go and visit those every week to make sure they're being clean to company standards. So there's a lot of autonomy there with with our uh, team members. And so our company is only as good as the team member who is servicing that account. Yep. And that's a lot of reputational risk um, put on somebody who we don't have a lot of uh, daily oversight on, you know? Um, so that's a con, uh, absolutely. The pros, you mentioned it, recurring revenue. I, I think 95%, I think, is uh, recurring contract-based you know, monthly uh, cleaning. Um, so a lot of recurring revenue. We really looked at COVID to understand how COVID affected this industry. What we found is it was pretty COVID proof. You know, some customers dialed back maybe the frequency of cleaning because their, uh, their staff maybe wasn't in the office regularly during, during COVID. So maybe they went from five nights a week to two, um, but they also paid more to have enhanced disinfection. So maybe our team members were in there twice a week, but um, now they were doing enhanced disinfection of all touch points, you know, different surfaces, stuff like that. Um, So really this, this company, the one we bought grew during 2020. Um, A lot of industry, a lot of industries didn't. And um, I thought that was, that was really neat. A little bit of fear. Okay. Our, our, people going back to the office. You know, there was a lot of conversation about that. Sure. Is office life is office life dead. And, um, I read enough articles to also get me thinking about, okay, you know, is, is office cleaning gonna, gonna change? And what we found here is people are back in the office, you know, it, um, it hasn't changed too much. Maybe it's different in, uh, you know, cities like Manhattan or something like that or New York yeah. city, but, uh, um, Everyone's back in the office and and things are booming here. So I see this industry not being disrupted in a meaningful way. I see it being very resilient. Um, The biggest challenge is just going to be
0: labor. Yeah. That's it. Well, man, I mean, if COVID couldn't disrupt this business, then, you know, nothing will. Well, except inflation (laughs) (laughs) and and labor shortages. Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah. Um, that, that's another tricky one. And we're, we're not, a you know, we're in the thick of that and who knows when that gets better. Yeah. Um, James on growth. So again, to the theme of being in a smaller market, and I think you'd mentioned that some of the biggest names in town were on her client roster of the, of this business that you acquired. So do you see a lot of growth potential here uh, other than kind of, you know, tweaking the, di- turning the dials, like you said, on, on maybe, um, you know, slight price price increases for customers that haven't haven't experienced those for a number of years but just in terms of like number of customers and and new business how do, how do you think about that in in a, in a smaller market
1: yeah i um yeah i want to talk about jordan in a little bit too and and kind of the different roles that that we kind of find ourselves Great. in in this company but um regarding growth we Jordan and I have always looked at this as like a, just a, you know, a platform acquisition. Um, we're really cutting our teeth. We're getting our MBA in small business ownership right now, and we're learning a ton. And it's such an awesome experience. Um, regarding growth, janitorial, it's, it's tough to scale um, in a meaningful way um, because of that quality control issue, like I, like I was telling you about. Um, Obviously, there's solutions for all this stuff. Um, But what we've decided as a company, the strategic direction that we want to go, we follow traction, by the way, EOS, um, like many of your your listeners and and other guests, but um, we've decided we want to be the one-stop shop for property management firms, which make up the majority of our customers, you know when we're cleaning office buildings it's actually the property managers that hire us not necessarily the business owners themselves um, and we want to be the vendor that property managers call when they need anything done so when they need janitorial work they call us when they need their commercial windows clean they call us when they need their floors stripped and waxed they call us um, so we want to position ourselves as the one-stop shop um, we've already been doing all those functions as a very small portion of our revenue for current customers. Um, so we see a path to organic growth just in those kind of adjacent services that we can, that we can provide to these property management companies. And, um, so that's kind of our, our strategic vision for this company is just to be that one-stop shop. And we're already kind of well on our way there.
0: James, you said you wanted to mention Jordan, and I, and I, I also wanted to hear about um, your decision to partner up and, and, and be partners in this. So um, tell me what you can about that.
1: Okay. So um, neither Jordan nor I financially needed a partner to to make this opportunity happen. We both could have independently done this, and, and we both independently would have been successful. Um, I'm a huge proponent of partnerships first of all i don't want to go through life alone i think that's that's boring you know um but i'm i'm a believer that one plus one equals three and there's a there's a cliche right but um
0: (laughs) man we're we're dropping lots of cliches today james (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'm
1: uh i i can be stubborn i can be set in my ways confirmation bias is a real thing yeah I can start to see what I want to see. I can start to believe my own bullshit, as they say. And um, for me, having a partner is having a sounding board who can talk me off a ledge, who can give me a perspective that maybe I wasn't thinking about. And same, you know, it, it goes the other way, too. I mean, Jordan, um, he's a brilliant mind. He is probably one of the most analytical guys I know he's able to assess things in a way that when he's, when he mentions a, you know, a thought, just like, wow, I, I can't believe I didn't think of that. And I think the ability for us to bounce things off each other is going to make this company exponentially get to where we want it to go, um, exponentially faster.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and you know, we don't always agree on stuff. And thank God for that, because if we did, why the hell would we partner up? We would just be partnered with the same person. But I think what Jordan is very good at and and where I try to be just as good as him is when we talk through something, we debate it, we go over the pros and cons. When we finally make a decision, we both support each other 100% going forward on that decision. Right. And um, a number of times Jordan and I have gone back and forth and, you know, we come to a a decision and he says, he's like, okay. He's like, I got you 100%. Let's do it. And there's a lot of value in that. Um, Not a lot of people are, are wired that way. And Jordan is, but he knows that he and I ultimately, when we're facing the world, we have a united front. You know, we might, you know, squabble behind closed doors or have disagreements. But when we open up that door and we have our message that we want to communicate, we are united. Because I think nothing is more toxic than leaders who bicker in front of their subordinates. Like, what kind of example does that set, you know? And, um, you know, not, not that we don't necessarily, you know, have some, uh, some devil's advocate kind of conversations and stuff like that in our meetings. But, um, but yeah, he is, uh, he's very good at discussing the pros and cons of things. And then when we make a decision, we, we move out on them together. And, um, he's awesome. I wouldn't have it any other way. I, like I said, financially, we both could have done it independently, but, um, he is, uh, he adds so much value to to me. And I hope I add the same to him just in the way that, uh, you know, we can just be there for each other and
0: and be sounding boards for each other. That's awesome. James hopping around here, the, during the pre-call you mentioned that your lender actually provided some sort of coaching kind of mentor mentorship might be a little bit strong, but some coaching of the process. And in fact, in, yeah, in this space, lenders, I've heard before that lenders kind of can, yeah, they 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 serve that purpose a little bit because um, many acquisition entrepreneurs are doing this for the first time, and they recognize that, and they, you know, they they see so many deals, they know the pitfalls. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Tell tell the audience what your experience was.
1: Yep. So um, just being around the the search funder community, and um, you know, a frequent consumer of, of podcasts like yours and others. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa Forrest is, is a well-known name in, in this space. Yep. And so reached out to her directly um, and actually kind of got to know her when I was interning at the traditional search fund. She came and uh, spoke to the interns at the, uh, the search fund and got to know her then. And, um, and then went when we pursued this deal, reached out to her. She is, there's a reason she's popular in this space. It's not because she's a banker who can, um, who can, uh, get the money. She is a, she is a mentor. Will you know, she's, um, I was able to call her, bounce some ideas off of her. And I know that she is, um, offering guidance and not just trying to close the deal, you know, and, um she was awesome. I spent hours and hours on the phone with her as we were getting this thing to the finish line. And, um, she was helping me look at due diligence in a way that I maybe some blind spots that I had maybe in ways that would have killed the deal, not from a bank funding standpoint, but from my own personal sense of comfort. And, um, so she was willing to potentially lose the deal, um, just to make sure that, that we were taken care of. And, you know, I don't have any other experience with other lenders in, in small business acquisition, but I will say that Lisa was, um, was awesome and I'll 100% use her every time going forward.
0: And James, you did your own financial due diligence, all of your own due diligence because your seller had such clean books. Talk to me about the, the, the due diligence process.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I initially thought okay i'm gonna I'm gonna outsource some of this to a third party um, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to get in there and take a crack at it myself before I brought in a third party and I wanted to do that for a couple of reasons. first, I wanted to really get intimate with this business myself yeah and and two, I wanted to see what what can I find out about this business with the very limited knowledge that i've got and i think what for better or for worse what what came about was i was comfortable enough with everything i had mostly because of like you said the 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 sellers just you know complete attention to detail on everything and just how clean everything was and then my um you know very recent knowledge with um with some of the schooling that i had had i felt completely comfortable you know, and, um, you know, Lisa even, even kind of guided me in that direction. Um, I asked her, I said, Hey, you know, would you advise me getting a, you know, a Q of E done on this company? And, um, after walking her through everything, she said, James, I think you got it, you know? And I know that's a risky thing to say because you don't know what you don't know, but I felt, I felt pretty comfortable with what I had. Um, I think had I come across anything that was very unusual to me or something that I couldn't, something that was making me stay up at night, I definitely would have uh, brought in a third party because what's $10,000, you know, when you're buying a several million dollar company in the long run. But yeah, I just didn't feel the need to do that.
0: And d- And did you feel that it did also serve the purpose that you wanted, which is educate you about this business a lot more. So when you, when you got in there, you were just going to be a smarter operator. Cause you already knew you, you already knew it down to the, you know, down to the dollar pretty intimately.
1: I was so read into everything on this business and even more so than the seller in a lot of ways, you know, I would ask a question about some account and she'd be like, what are you talking about? I'd be like, well, it's right here on your, on your PNL or, or whatever. <laughs> And, um, you know, she, she didn't live in that world whatsoever. You know, she, um, her bookkeeper ran her books and, um, she was pretty, uh, pretty removed from that, um, in terms of like, you know, real specifics and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I got so intimate with the business. It was great. And I would recommend everybody, even if you hire a third party, do not just Put that off on somebody else because there's no better way to to find skeletons in the closet than to just open the closet door yourself. You know.
0: <laughs> James, is there anything uh, that we didn't touch on that you think the audience should hear about?
1: Yeah, I think we you know we talked about the transferability. I, I really see that as being just a major thing that a lot of searchers probably overlook. Um, they look at revenue and SDE on a listing, and then they get excited about it. Um, but they don't really understand you're going to be living this business for a very long time. You're going to be getting married to it. You're gonna be having dreams about it, nightmares about it. Um, is this something you really want to, um, get married to? Is this industry something that really, um, that you're, you're passionate about? Um, so I think, I think that would just go a long way Just sellers just, or I'm sorry, um, searchers really thinking about, is this something that a, I can take over, you know, can I now lead these people that the seller, um, has been leading for 20 years and can I dive into this industry in a meaningful way? I think that's, um, that's super important.
0: James, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way?
1: Yeah. So, um, Jordan and I both, uh, so we're both on LinkedIn. So James Maxwell and, uh, Jordan Inman. And then my email address is jmaxwell814 at gmail.com. And then his is Jordan at gmail.com. And, um, I just made a Twitter account and, uh, I've never posted anything. <laughs> I, I like literally just made it because I hear all these, all these guests are like, Oh, you can find me on Twitter. And, um, so I'm just starting to poke around on that. But, uh, That's that's actually kind of cool, the whole Twitter thing, which like I said, I'm, I'm very new to, but
0: I, I, I was just going to joke about it, James. I was going to be like, I was going to say, w- what are you going to get on Twitter? Yeah. So yeah, you're, you're, you're one step ahead as you should, I mean, and you should be on there. I'll, I'll reiterate what you've heard. What is your Twitter handle? So audience go follow James, even though he's, he's new to the platform. Let's <laughs> give him a, let's give, like give him a boost in followership. Um, what, what's your
1: Twitter I handle? I actually don't know, but I'll, I'll tell you after this and then, um, <laughs> then maybe you can uh, plug it in later. I'll put it in the show yeah, notes.
0: Cool. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Cool, James. This was great. Thanks, thank you, sir, for the time. Yeah, thank you, Will. Take care.